Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. Today, we're discussing coughing children. We speak to Tim Spector, who leads the COVID symptom study, to ask what their data tells us about coughs in children with COVID. We also get some tips on how to assess a child with a persistent cough from paediatrician Ed Snelson. I'm Tom Nolan, clinical editor for the BMJ and uh, GP in London. And as ever, I'm joined by Jenny. Hi, Jenny. How are you? Hi, I'm well, Tom. How are you? I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor and a clinical editor for the BMJ. And today we don't have Navjoit with us, um, unfortunately, but we're very pleased to welcome uh, Josh Cohen. Hi, Josh. Hi, Tom. Uh, So, yeah, uh, my name's Josh. Uh, I'm a GP registrar in my final year uh, working in a practice in South London. Um, I've had a really interesting last year. I was expecting to learn the tools of the trade, learn how to do all my examinations properly. Uh, And instead, it's been slightly disrupted by uh, COVID. Um, So I uh, contracted COVID pretty early on, back in sort of mid-March. Took a couple of weeks off uh, with COVID, but we're now sort of mid-October almost approaching and I'm still getting symptoms now. So it's been quite a quite a journey uh, in terms of that and my understanding of disease and and uh, it's been a bit yeah. of a surprise, let's say. I'm so sorry to hear that. Uh, can we ask what symptoms you had and what your experience was like getting tested? Yeah, so um, I first, my first experience I noticed was a loss of smell, which... Uh, I was really excited about at the time and I, I think I was I was in a, a kind of flower shop going around smelling uh, different herbs and, and saying to my wife look I can't smell this and, and she was sh- shushing me and, and ushering me home but um, didn't really believe that that I had the anosmia and, and at this point it wasn't on the the kind of official mm. list mm. of symptoms a rumor at the time. Um, so I and I'd had a week of a week of kind of achy kind of uh, achy symptoms, but at the time I thought it was it was sort of uh, a secondary to panic buying toilet roll uh, late on a Wednesday <laughs> night in, on the old Kent Road. Um, Tell us about the, um, the, the 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 long COVID. Yeah, so I guess it's been it's been a very uh, long journey. It's been six months now. Um, my main symptoms that I get now are fatigue and chest pain and a bit of. Um, uh, breathlessness now and then uh, and it's to me it's a re- really a game of snakes and ladders in that you go a few steps forward and then the next week you'll go down down the snake and then you'll be back back a few steps further and, and I, it's that's what's been quite hard to take I think I've tried to be quite pragmatic about um, my approach to it and that it's going to be a long long recovery period so not to expect too much but it's been quite hard to uh, work out how how I'm getting better and, and and what what investigations if any that I need what has it been like trying to get back to some kind of physical activity or exercise yeah so back in March I was training for the Manchester Marathon and I was 
it wasn't quite there, uh, but I was, I was, I was doing some pretty long distances. I could run a half marathon um, without without too much difficulty. And then since then, I've I've not done any running. I've gone around the park a couple of times. Um, I started swimming uh, about a month ago, which was going quite well. Um, but I think I've had a setback in the last couple of weeks, and that I've just been really tired from from doing minimal minimal activity. So it's hard to hard to know. I'm, and I think that's the most recent setback has kind of set me back towards seeking more medical attention and investigations just to to see if there is any long term damage really. And what's been for me the profound fatigue that I have is only in the evenings and it's, you know, I've got two young kids and I've got a stressful job. So there's lots of things that I should be tired about, but this feels very different. Mm. Well, glad you mentioned kids because um, that's today's episode. We're talking about children and, and coughing children. I mean, when, when you had your symptoms, did, did, did your family have it? Did your children have symptoms of COVID? Do you think they had it as well? I think my, I've got a one-year-old and a three-year-old and my one-year-old had a fever around the same time um, and was probably snotty. I can't really remember, but he, um, we assumed that he had it. My wife was kind of tired and run down. So we assumed she had it and my daughter didn't have any symptoms. Um, I never had a cough. I never had a fever. Um, so in yeah. terms of the classic symptoms, I wasn't ticking those boxes and I'm not sure my children were either. Right. So we're so to move on to to this issue then because I don't know if you've noticed this, Josh. In the last couple of months, when the, the schools went back, we suddenly got a lot of people calling, you know, with their children with coughs. Um, mm. uh, and of course, any anybody with a cough, according to the UK guidance, should have a, a coronavirus test. Um, but it didn't seem to kind of <laughs> tally very well with what was really going on in the world. No, it's been a complete nightmare, I'd say, and it's and it's going to get worse this winter. Um, I, th- I think a cough is such a, a common symptom that that children have, um, and I think you know your role as as a general practitioner is to kind of toe the toe the party line on this, uh, and I think that's be that's quite difficult. I think you need to be quite cautious and say, look, this is the current national recommendation. I appreciate your child probably doesn't have coronavirus, mm. but but sometimes as a doctor, you have to sit on that cautious side of the well, fence. I guess that's what I'd, I'd really love to explore that a bit a bit more today because we, we were getting people calling in saying, um, oh, so yeah, my two-year-old's got a cough, but it's not a COVID cough. So I know it's not that. And um, and you'd think, yeah, you, you, I think you're probably right. But, you know, we haven't been sort of given any um, flexibility, have we, within general practice to use our clinical judgment when it comes to uh, COVID testing. So wouldn't it? Yeah, Jenny, what do you think? Well, I think we still don't have enough information. The New York Times ran an article this um, this past weekend on trying to distinguish between COVID and the flu based on symptoms. And I don't really think we have the evidence to be able to say um, Mm. these symptoms in a child mean one thing and these symptoms mean something else. And I... I think parents are in a really tough situation right now Mm. um, because just as you said, you know, the, the, the guidance that we should be giving as GPs is, you know, you need to err on the side of caution given the ramifications of potential transmission. Um, But when schools have just reopened and the parents really need a break and it's just a little runny nose, it's so hard 
when you know you're <laughs> condemning them to another day with their kids at home and them trying to juggle work yeah. and kids and absent childcare, it is really hard. Yeah, yeah, and your job's on the line because you know you you spent so much time away or you know, the economic situation. Um, but actually, I wonder how good doctors are at obeying obeying the rules as in doctors with kids you know are because doctors are kind of the worst for taking sick days anyway they usually mm. plow on through work whatever whatever sniffles they've got so you know how many doctors are going to work with a child with a cough that's an open question but it'd be interesting to know and it's something that we'll never yeah, find right. out. So, well there's that but also the fact that doctors are essential workers right so in some places child care institutions and schools are open specifically for their kids right um but I have to say, um, both of my kids have runny noses right now, and my youngest had a cough yesterday morning, and oh. I was tearing, you know, like really, really trying to make this decision this morning. Do I send them to school? I really needed to send them to school. Do I not send them to school? Oh, here but we go. We've got one on. No, I, confessing I to his life. No, no, no. All right. I'm, it's truly a confessional. <laughs> I, but I, I'm proud to say that I, I right. stayed home with them today. I didn't do my job. Well yeah. Yeah. yeah, but we've got that get out here because it's, it's a persistent cough, you know. And I think for GPs, you know, we we say persistent. It's probably like a couple of weeks, you know, <laughs> you know before COVID. Yeah. So we can stretch that a little bit. My um, my three year old daughter will will drink out of her Tommy Tippy cup and then start coughing, and then and then she'll say it's not that type of cough. <laughs> oh dear. Um, so. You say about the the evidence, and um, so we've spoken to someone who who is gathering evidence on this. So I'm mean, sure you've heard of him, um, Tim Spector. He um, professor of genetic epidemiology at King's College London, um, and at the outset of this um, pandemic, he set up this platform, um, the Zoe app, uh, and four million people are now tracking their um, symptoms every day, and so giving them loads of data on symptoms and prevalence uh, of COVID. So he was talking to um, one of one of our colleagues, Rebecca Coombs, who's the uh, head of news and views at, at BMJ, and we put a number of questions to him about this because we really wanted to know, you know, is a child with a cough really any more likely to have COVID than uh, a child without a cough, really? So uh, shall we have a listen to what he's got to say? We're still looking at the data. Zoe is still looking at the data, so that we haven't handed it over to the university yet. Um, cough is quite rare. Shortness of breath is rare, and uh, loss of and anosmia is rare. So it's actually hot. Fever is is up there at number three or four. Um, but again, you know, less than half of kids will have fever who have a positive test. Obviously, you've got skin rashes is, is commoner and gastro symptoms are common. But I think one of the things that clinicians struggle with at the moment is, you know, is a, is a child with a cough any more likely to have COVID than a child who doesn't have a cough? Uh, well, our data suggests that, it, it, again, it's more about the definition of the cough. Um, a, a cough, no. If it's a really persistent cough, and I don't know, did you have COVID or not? But, I mean, most people have had COVID will describe the cough to you as something you can't 
talk, you can't eat. You know, um, I I had COVID mildly, but you know, at nine o'clock every night I would would cough for an hour. You know, it was kind of weird. It was a weird cough, and I, I couldn't really do much else. You know, what our Dave's suggesting is if your kid has a cough um, and a runny nose, then it's it, you know it's ninety nine percent going to be uh, a cold virus. Uh, they don't have a runny nose and they've got a cough uh, and they've got a headache or fatigue, then it's probably quite likely to be COVID. I mean, you know, it's this combination of symptoms that would be, usually most, most kids will have a runny nose and a cough and they don't have COVID. Is your data telling you anything about the prevalence of non-COVID respiratory tract infections at the moment in the population as at large? Well, we... Uh, we are picking. We do pick up sort of numbers of people reporting ill, mm-hmm. uh, and looking at the percentage of those people reporting ill who are COVID positive. Uh, we don't obviously do testing for viruses or know exactly what they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't think overall in our you know several million users it had a major impact. I do know that specifically in school age kids and parents there was a. There was a, a brief ripple that seems to be dying out now. Right. Um, so we've not seen that rate of people reporting sick leaping up who are, who are, who are test negative. So uh, I don't think it's a major outbreak. I think you know, there's probably worse to come in the winter. So what do you think? It kind of confirms what we were saying, I suppose, that it would just depend on the clinical context, as ever. But, uh, you know, do you think that GPs should have some more say over this? Like, should we be able to say, no, you don't need a test? I I, I just think probably the the profession would uh, be up in arms if that was suggested. I think it's really tough. And I think we're at a time now that, uh, you know, the kind of, is we're approaching a second lockdown possibly and it's it's just difficult to say that whether you give GPs full autonomy as to deciding who gets a test or not and I think the public would be up in arms about if GPs were given that decision I think it would be too difficult to to call I, I think I'm not sure that interview clears clears the muddy water I think it also really depends on kind of the context of what's happening in the country or region or municipality, you know, um, if you're on an upswing, um, if case numbers are going up, but you have adequate testing, um, then there's a strong argument for getting testing, you know, get if tests are freely available, get tested. Um, if you're in the middle of rising numbers, but tests aren't available, then you know, some people might just say it's better just to do the isolation, do the quarantine, watch and wait a little bit. Um, I just think it really depends on the context, the numbers, the availability of tests, how hard it is to get a test. Um, you know, it, um, I mean, that was that was the problem here in, in that you couldn't get a test for a couple of weeks. And my, my children had a, a cough and we did the right thing and got tested. But it's it, so hard to get a test. And um and I think that's because people like me trying to do the right thing, we're actually 
make it very difficult for if you really did have COVID symptoms to um, to get the diagnosis. So there's a real danger in that, I think. And um, it would be nice to, to think that in this day and age, we could have a slightly more um, sophisticated way of uh, deciding who needs a test and who doesn't. So if, you, if you've got a child, if they've got a cough and a runny nose and no other symptoms, then you know you might argue they don't even need to isolate they can carry on uh, as usual and then you have more tests available yes yeah and certainly hearing what tim said about that particular combination of symptoms is really compelling you know and really and should be really reassuring to a lot of mm. people if you have a cough and a runny nose and it hasn't been going on for a long time the overwhelming likelihood is that it's not coronavirus it's fine but it's. It, the, I think the, the the piece that's interesting here is the decision making, you know. So when you're not then isolating at home, even if it's not COVID, you are giving other people potentially the illness. And then what if the symptoms manifest differently in them? Isn't it also still compelling to kind of exercise? additional precautions in terms of respiratory viruses, even if it's not COVID, given the possibility of exposure mm, in healthcare mm. settings and the possibility of other people then needing to weigh this decision. Yeah. Uh, f- for me, one of the interesting parallels is with something like bronchiolitis, you know, and if you've ever worked in a, in a pediatric ward in winter or in children's a in winter, you know, all you see is um, bronchiolitis, bronchiolitis. And it's, it's a it's a lethal disease and it you know it, it puts children who are at risk and those in the at risk group at a, you know you can be in intensive care with it and it's not uh, something that we test for and it's not something that we isolate for it's you know it's a common a common virus that spreads around um, in nurseries but yeah. we don't ask people to isolate for it even though it can be fatal hmm. so yeah, I mean, if if you're if you're speaking to a parent with a, a child with a runny nose and a cough, are you are you both confident to say, hey, it's not, you know, it's, this isn't COVID, reassuring or still on the fence? I think I'm I'm happy to say it's unlikely to be COVID, but I think I I would do include in my safety netting. Uh, you know, these are the symptoms you need to watch out for, and also I think we we probably do need to isolate and and get a test. Um, but the, the test is really more to get you back to, to work and get children back to nursery rather than to provide any any useful things in clinical management. Yeah, I agree with that completely. It, where testing is available, I would just say go get a test to, to so that you get that negative result and you can proceed um, because as compelling as it's so strange right like as compelling as um the evidence is and what tim was saying i still have this question is is it ever clear can we ever say that i'm even with my own kids my my partner and i were saying this morning it's not covid but you know um and you know again we kept them home yeah um, and, and you're and, in New Zealand. No one's got COVID oh, in New Zealand. Well, I mean, but but again, that's what, like context, right? And 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 still, I have to admit, as as proud as I am that we kept them home, we haven't actually taken them for testing. And part of that is because there are no cases right now, right? But if you're in a place mm. where the case numbers are going up, and and if it's it's accessible, then what's the argument against going for yeah. a test, yeah. except the yeah. competition for others who might need it? Still and Jenny, 
Jenny, can I ask, have, have you have you had a COVID test yourself or, or administered one to a child? So I have, uh, yeah. I have, because <laughs> I did my time in New Zealand's um, managed isolation. And both mm-hmm. of my kids also had um, two tests. Uh, you get you get one when you come okay. in, and then you get one when you leave. Um, and yes, I I think you're, what you're alluding to is how difficult it is to actually give that test to a kid. My um, my four year old was um, not a fan, not a fan of the parents holding him down for yeah. that test. So we're talking about the, these uncertainties we have with the consultation nowadays with with COVID and the acute cough in children. But um, I suppose we've been dealing with this sort of problem for a while, haven't we? Well, forever with with children with cough and particularly a cough at night that goes on. that has been going on a long time, keeping the parents awake. Uh, Absolutely. This was one of the most common um, chief complaints for parents I used to see um, in my practice in Phnom Penh, um, and that's partly because of air quality, um, but at least, you know, I, I won't try to put a frequency on it. Um, I used to see this all the time, and um, it, I, I had a lot of questions. You know, how do I advise these parents who are frustrated by the lack of sleep, who are concerned about their kid, but also don't necessarily want to go into um, diagnostic testing or um, medications if they don't have to. And so I had a chat to Ed Snelson about what we can recommend to parents who are desperate to get back to sleep and get their coughing children better. And this was before COVID, really. We recorded this a while ago, didn't we? Yes, thanks. That's important to know. We recorded <laughs> this conversation um, before COVID became anything close to a pandemic. And that interview with Ed Snelson is coming up after this from our sponsor. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical protection is always here for you with expert medico-legal advice, including 24-7 in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims. We're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations, and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks, and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, we're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. Let's go back to Jenny's interview with Ed Snelson. Uh, my name's Edward. I'm a uh, paediatrician. I work at the Sheffield Children's Hospital in the paediatric emergency department. Much of the evidence and research that explores the answer to that question is based in secondary or tertiary care. Right. And so actually trying to understand the uh, 
the evidence-based management of a child with persistent cough who is seeing a primary care clinician is difficult because there is mm. very little research that will look at children who are presenting in primary care who do not then need referral to secondary care or who are not perceived to need the referral to secondary mm-hmm. The slightly awkward answer to that is nobody knows. <laughs> that makes me feel so much better about myself. <laughs> yeah. That uh, we, in secondary care, it is often not known what the denominator is of patients with that symptom. Uh, the, the, the patients who are seen in secondary care are much more likely to have significant pathology. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, if you ask a respiratory pediatrician about causes of chronic cough, they will talk about various pathologies and will overrepresent things which are very unlikely to see in primary care. That's just because they will, you know, be talking about things that they diagnose. They will, you know, also talk about the normal. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about what we do know from the evidence. The fact I'm writing all of these children have chronic cough and are never found to have any pathology. You know, that is that is a significant number, even in a secondary care setting, which a post-infective cough is it is a common diagnosis. That's one of the reasons why uh, I often hear the the experts emphasize the need to ask the question whether this is a daily cough. Oh, interesting. And what is that aiming to distinguish? So between? if a child comes presenting with a, uh, a reported cough, let's say for three months, uh, what that could mean is that they've had three mm. episodes of a cough that lasted two or three weeks. And then the parental perceptional report, and that's to do with semantics. You know, that they mm-hmm. report it to be my child has been coughing for three or four months when the slightly different uh, perspective on that is that during three or four months, they have had more weeks of coughing than not, but they have had weeks within that where their cough goes away. Got it. That's a really useful discriminator because mm-hmm. most significant pathology does not give you a week or two off. And do you find that the distinction between a day cough or a night cough is important diagnostically? So, again, there has been some useful secondary care-based research on uh, not just the the pattern of cough, but also the severity of the cough. Mm -hmm. Uh, Children where they were admitted for recording of their cough using uh you know so in in other words so how frequent it is how many decibels you know all those Mm -hmm. the kind of thing that research loves um, and comparing that to parental reports and Uh find that the perception of cough does not correlate well Hmm. with actual recordings of cough Hmm. and there are plenty of of course it's difficult to know whether that history of nocturnal cough mm. is significant clinically. Mm. Children, of course, at night also accumulate more secretions. 
So they can have prolonged periods of those secretions building up and then can have quite a significant event where they have to clear all those secretions and then it sounds awful. Right. Which then people will be more aware of. And of course, if it disturbs their sleep, they might be more likely to mention that or, or think about it when it comes to the consultation. Or bring their child in out of desperation. I am learning so much from you. Thank you. So now we've got both a daily cough and a, a cough that's noticed more at night. Mm-hmm. And somebody says, well, okay, so maybe this is asthma. Uh, we know that there is no good diagnostic test for asthma in children. Um, that it right. is a, uh, a slightly ill-defined illness. And so there is <laughs> a subjective nature to it. And therefore it is uh, something that somebody could say, yeah. Let's try some inhaled corticosteroid therapy for this child mm-hmm. and see what happens. So I'm going to start this child on, say, beclomethasone, mm-hmm. uh, meter dose inhaler, mm-hmm. and see you again in one or two months' time. Right. And guess what? The cough, the cough gets better? It is. <laughs> because your classic post-infective pertussis cough takes about three or four months to get better. Right. Now, what you've got here is some confirmation bias, because Mm -hmm. the risk here is that that is perceived as proof that the child had asthma. There is good evidence that asthma is overdiagnosed in children, especially under the age of five, but just in children generally. And this is probably one of the ways that that happens. Interesting. Is the... uh, is the treatment of a cough without wheeze mm-hmm. as asthma. So, so I'm glad you said that because one of the questions that I had for you was specifically around how frequently that asthma only presents with a cough, um, whether it's during the day or night. Is there any evidence? I mean, and I'm appreciating that the diagnosis is very difficult. Probably we're Mm. and diagnosing it too frequently. But what evidence is there behind cough, um, cough variant asthma and um, when that would be the only presenting symptom? Mm. The, the diagnosis of cough variant asthma is uh, hugely controversial. Mm. The uh, British Thoracic Society guidelines for the diagnosis of asthma very strongly recommend that cough in the absence of wheeze or other clear symptoms of asthma, should not be diagnosed as asthma in children. Hmm. Until what age? um, Well, it doesn't actually give a cutoff age. It says that cough in the absence of wheeze should not be straightforwardly diagnosed as asthma, that it could be referred for further investigations, but not treated as a uh, as as a as, as an asthma diagnosis as as a routine, mm. Mm. the the original sort of concept of uh, cough variant asthma was a little bit a, a, a sort of a case of secondary and tertiary care experts raising that as a uh, as a potential diagnosis mm. in patients with chronic cough 
and lack of other symptoms. But because asthma is something that is difficult to define mm. and has no uh, no gold standard test for the diagnosis of it, the danger with that is that it's self-fulfilling. If somebody says, well, I see patients with cough and uh, and I thought it was asthma, I treated it as asthma, and therefore it's asthma. Yeah, that, that, is, that is difficult. Unless you have really, really good, rigorous research that is randomized, placebo, double-blinded, mm-hmm. controlled trials that showed that treatment of those uh, people with chronic cough and no other symptoms very, very clearly responded. As far as mm-hmm. I'm aware, that evidence does not exist. There's lots mm. of evidence that chronic cough without other symptoms probably isn't asthma. Mm. It's very little to uh, to to rigorously support the mm-hmm. idea of variant asthma, which is why the BTS guidelines sort of pushing us away from that idea. Sure, sure, and I and I suppose that there are a, well, I'm guessing that there are a few exceptions. Um, for example, for example, excuse me, a strong family history of asthma, um, kids who get upper respiratory infections and typically frequently have wheeze associated with their cough during what would otherwise be, you know, what would could be in other children, a more milder presentation. Would you, what, how would, how do you take those features into consideration? The uh, the family history of asthma uh, mm-hmm. is something that again the BTS guidelines de-emphasize that. Mm. that the uh, which is probably for two reasons. One that the uh, uh, family history of atopy is common, and so therefore a difficult d- discriminator to rely on because it's too common. And the other reason is that family history of atopy can be incorrect mm. So, mm. because mm-hmm. yeah by by taking the, the 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 fact that asthma is overdiagnosed in children therefore when you are told by a parent that they had asthma as a child that is watered down by being factually incorrect some of the time I thought that was a really interesting interview. And um, I, one of the things I thought was interesting that uh, Dr. Snelson said was talking about this, the fact that secondary care have no idea of a denominator. And and also just talking about the time frame that, you know, things tend to get better. I guess one of the thoughts that, that I had is, you know, does secondary care need to see more of the denominator? So should GPs be referring more of the denominator and then if, if that in turn creates the two month, three month wait to see the secondary care, will the cough in fact get better by the time they see the second, second week to hear doctors anyway? Um, but I guess, I guess parents, what, in my experience, parents are very keen for a diagnosis, but they're also not that keen to start steroids. So you're kind of stuck in this dilemma of, you know, this is how we, diagnose asthma in some ways it's it's a trial of steroids and people are quite reluctant to do that so actually 
you know, what, what we always want as GPs is, is a time frame. You know, this should get better within four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks. Um, and just taking it slightly back to COVID is that, I guess, with these coughs is that that's kind of messed around with our time frame quite a lot in, 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 this, in this context. Well, I mean, generally just time frames for things getting shorter and shorter, aren't they? You know, 10 years ago, pe- people weren't, or had a better tolerance or a greater tolerance for how long things might last. Mm. The good old days. <laughs> so two things that Ed and I also talked about, which we don't have time to play um, for this episode. Um, and two of the takeaway points for me was that um, number one, the overall impression of the child still matters. So that kind of um, basic, sick or not sick, well or not well, are they growing? Are they developing normally? So when we think about long-term symptoms um, and and the potential for either like a post-infectious, post-pertussis picture or um, multiple post-infectious coughs, but kind of during cold and flu season and having that symptom repeatedly, is the child thriving or not? So that was a really um, kind of important consideration for me just to try to get a sense of is an underlying chronic condition more or less likely. And then the other thing that I took from that interview, which again, we didn't have time to play, was um, to use that consultation as an opportunity to really make sure um, that we ask about whether there's a smoker in the house. So sources of secondhand smoke, be it in the house from relatives or friends or even in buildings. So there was some interesting research around secondhand smoke in apartment buildings that was done in the Bronx, um, which is super interesting. Um, But I thought those two points were really important in terms of look, thinking about that whole picture, which, you know, have kind of fallen to the background during Mm. um, COVID, Mm. but are still important. Maybe other socioeconomic factors as well. I, I came across a bit of research linking the presentation of cough in children with cramped housing conditions. So, you know, if you're sh- having to share a room with, with your kids, you know, I guess you're more likely to to wake up with that cough, but also to, to need some more help with it too. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, I, I guess I don't know how you'd me- measure it locally, but also pollution and uh, where you live I know that my daughter's nursery is on one of the busiest roads in South London and it's it's I feel terrible bringing her down that road every day and the nursery window backs onto the you know a traffic jam essentially so it's I think you get the London lung in in a in children yeah and and along those lines no absolutely um children who grow up in the Bronx have higher rates of asthma than students who go to school elsewhere grow up in other places it's I, I think that's a really important point that um and I saw that in Phnom Penh as well as I already said that you know the qual- air quality um really matters and so we would see seasonal fluctuations with wet and dry season um with better air quality during the rainy season, um, largely giving us some improvement in some of those symptoms. Mm. Um, I guess just on that point, I've lived in China and Southeast Asia as well. And and I guess a comment that I have is that, you know, how the British always talk about weather and, and you know, what what's it like today in in sort of areas where the pollution is, you, you talk about the quality of the oh, air yeah. and what, you know, how smoggy it is today. You definitely do. And and 
it's it's also related to coronavirus because people in some of those countries who are used to wearing masks because of air pollution concerns are have a much more kind of normalized acceptance of mask wearing, whether that's because of pollution, mm. because of sickness, not wanting to transmit diseases. And we have seen a lot of countries in Asia do better with their coronavirus response in part because people are used to wearing masks. It's not a fight. So I guess we see with both uh, the, the child with a cough now, where a uh, COVID test is needed, or, or with a persistent cough, um, a lot of this isn't so much about the treatment, is it? Because for both, there there really aren't many treatment options. I guess it's, what is it about? Is managing parental kind of concern or reassurance? Empathizing, feeling their pain of not being able to send their children to school, daycare. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think, I see us as a kind of a midwife of symptoms. You know, we need to see them through the journey of of the cough. You know, we will be here. You can call us. Uh, not too much, but <laughs> but but it, but it will get better over time, and and we will see see improvement in in the cough. Unless, in, in of course, we need to refer it on. <laughs> So maybe that's a good point to to leave things there for today. Um, Hope you enjoyed today's episode. Uh, If you did, uh, please subscribe and make sure you subscribe to the Deep Breath In channel on wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review and maybe uh, some stars and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us, Josh. It's been great to have you on. Yep, thank you. Lovely to be here. And thank you, Jenny. Thanks, Tom. And thank you as well to Tim Spector and Ed Snelson. We'll leave you with our deep breath out, which is the part of the podcast where we play something that uh, maybe relaxes you or relaxes um, after a busy day of of work. Uh, And Josh, we're going to ask you if you'd like to contribute this episode. Have you got something for us? Yep. Uh, This is me uh, messing around on my guitar. (laughs) 